1: Welcome to The Broad Experience, the show about women, the workplace and success. I'm Ashley milne And in this episode, I'm handing over the reins to Lauren Schiller. Lauren's the host of the Inflection Point podcast. I've mentioned it on the show before, and I'm sure some of you are already listeners. We're working together as part of a Summer Swap series. And I picked this episode to air that Lauren did with the writer Ruth Whitman a couple of years ago. It's called More Than Power Poses Why Self Empowerment is a Myth and What We Can Do Instead. So, Ruth, like me, was born and raised in England, and we definitely share some cultural experiences, and particularly the experience of looking at American culture with an outsider's eye. And in this conversation, Ruth and Lauren question that lean in like advice that if you just make enough of an effort to help yourself, Power, influence, and happiness will be yours. Here's Lauren. From KALW
2: and PRX, this is Inflection Point, stories of how women rise up. I'm Lauren Schiller.
3: People who are in the happiness business are financially incentivized to believe that we have a lot of control over our happiness. And there's a lot of kind of massaging, shall we say, of the evidence in that direction. It doesn't, the, the, the real genuine evidence doesn't really support that. And also it can quite easily kind of morph into a kind of victim blaming. You know, this idea that if you're not happy, you just haven't worked hard enough. You know, somehow your own fault.
2: A couple of years ago, I talked with Ruth Whitman, the author of America the Anxious. Her book was about how our pursuit of happiness is creating a nation of nervous wrecks. She investigated the multi-billion dollar self-help industry to see if it was actually making a dent in the American psyche. It turns out that the return on our self-investment
3: is actually pretty darn low. People in, in the United States are more likely to suffer from an anxiety disorder, a clinical anxiety disorder, than anyone anywhere else in the world. Like really, really low.
2: I'm Lauren Schiller, and this season on Inflection Point, we're trying to discover how all the quote, empowerment women are expressing right now can lead to actual power. More than a 100 women were elected to Congress in the past midterm. The rise of the Me Too movement, the toppling of powerful men like the late Roger Ailes, Bill Cosby, Charlie Rose... But will all this newfound power last? Will you feel proud to wear that future is female t-shirt in three years? And if not, whose fault is it? Yours? Are you feeling anxious yet? Recently, I came across an article that Ruth wrote for Time magazine, right before the 2016 election. The title, Empowerment is Warping Women's View of Real Power. So I started to think back on our previous conversation and to think that maybe power, like happiness, is considered entirely up to us as
3: individuals. I mean, it puts this incredible burden on women to sort out these really systemic major problems, like the pay gap, like, uh, you know, inequality in the workplace, like violence against women. And it almost becomes a kind of victim blaming. You know, if we were only more assertive, then all these things would be sorted out.
2: So Ruth and I sat down once again to sort out exactly how women are supposed to get power if we can't simply take it for ourselves and gain some perspective on this whole question of empowerment and what exactly needs to change for empowerment to lead to power.
3: Yeah, so I think there's a, there are a lot of parallels between this idea of uh, empowerment, feminism and the self-help industry, which is something that I really looked at a lot when I was writing the book. And one of the conclusions I reached pretty quickly was this idea that we have this view that happiness is kind of an individual responsibility. So instead of thinking, you know, society's responsibility to make everybody, you know, to create the conditions under which everyone can be happy, it's like the individual needs to be, you know, going to mindfulness classes and reading self-help books and writing in their gratitude journal and doing yoga classes and all of these things to kind of almost pull yourself up by your bootstraps to make yourself happy and it's quite a kind of punitive approach to happiness and it's quite a weirdly individualistic approach and i think a lot of the same principles can be applied to this idea of empowerment feminism so what are some of the ways that
2: you've seen women try to find empowerment or or be empowered
3: Well, this word empowering, I mean, you see it everywhere now. It's kind of, uh, there was a a headline uh, in The Onion, you know, the satirical magazine, which was women empowered by everything a woman does. And, you know, (laughs) I think it it really rings true. I mean, you just see it from everything from buying the right shampoo to taking naked pictures of yourself and putting them on Instagram to, you know, I saw one of get plastic surgery on your vagina that was pitched as being something empowering. So, you know, I think it's become kind of ubiquitous to the point where it's become slightly meaningless and has very, very little to do with actual power. And it
2: sounds like like the examples that you just gave are all about women changing themselves to achieve some some, to achieve what like what what are they what is
3: (laughs) what are they empowering themselves to be? Well, this is this is the thing. So I think that um, empowerment, I mean, I think the, the word empowerment has been used to to cover a lot of really important initiatives as well. So let's not write it off completely. But you hear this word empowerment associated with a kind of feminism, which I think of as the kind of lean in style of feminism. You know, Sheryl Sandberg's book, Lean In, which is all about being more assertive, stop apologizing, speak up in meetings, ask for a raise, you know, and this idea that if we could just be a little more assertive, if we would stand up for ourselves, then we would, you know, we would be paid equally, we would reach positions of power, and all the rest of it. And I think this idea is quite problematic for a number of reasons. Um, One is that this whole assertiveness model doesn't actually work. I mean, in general, women tend to be punished for these kinds of things rather than, than rewarded. So men can speak up in meetings and go in all guns blazing and demand a pay rise and all the rest of it. And actually, for women, that kind of thing tends to backfire. And there's lots of research that backs this up. But also, it's this idea that these are deep systemic problems. I mean, why is Sheryl Sandberg writing a book saying, you know, t- to address to women saying, go and demand a raise, rather than addressing her message to corporations to actually look at their pay structures and try to pay men and women equally? Why are we placing the burden on individual women to fix these problems? That's such a good point. And I, I feel like her thinking on
2: it, has evolved since she wrote that book, but I haven't been keeping up with her writing on it. I mean, have you seen anything where she's been changing her...
3: I think she's changed. She's sort of tweaked her message rather than changed her fundamental message. So and this is a terrible tragedy. And my heart goes out to Cheryl Samba because she lost her husband a couple of years ago, a few years ago. And I think that led her to kind of tweak some of her messaging around, you know, have a great partner and use your partner as support. And she realized that actually she's a, she was in a very privileged position to even have a partner. So I think these are more kind of tweaks than addressing the fundamental message. I mean, Sheryl Sandberg could be using her authority to really address pay inequality by targeting companies or by targeting men. I mean, this is the other thing. I mean, by targeting companies, by targeting governments to enact proper legislation around this and by targeting men, because I think the advice is always, you know, women speak up in meetings. It's never men listen in meetings, you know, it's always women, stop apologizing. It's never men. You know, maybe you could do with a bit more apologizing. You know, it's all about assertiveness for women rather than kind of deference for men. And it kind of comes back to why, you know, why are women such a wonderful target for this type of thinking why is the burden always on women to do the changing you know why do we always have to shift our norms and cultures why is it assumed that the the male pattern is the better pattern and i think it kind of comes back to the fact that we as women tend to have this massive appetite for self-flagellation really I mean, you know, for for guilt, for for feeling we're doing something wrong, we buy these books. I mean, we are the ones who buy these books. When I was uh, writing my book and I was looking at the self-help industry, over 80% of self-help books are bought by women. Men do not want to change.
2: Women do. (laughs) Right. They don't want to ask for directions. They don't want to go to the doctor. (laughs) There's nothing that needs to be made better about them. But yet women feel – we feel like there's there's so much more we could be doing. And not only can we change ourselves, but we can change the people around us.
3: Right. Exactly. And the burden is on us. I mean, I don't know if you've come across – these are ones that I – Notice when I was doing my research for America the Anxious, there's this whole series of books called Women Who, and it's Women Who Love Too Much, Women Who Think Too Much, Women Who Do Too Much, Women Who You know, and you never see the titles you know, Men Who Love Too Little, or Men Who Do Too Little, or Think Too Little, or whatever and I think the reason is because no one's going to buy those books, and this is a massive industry, it's a massive industry to make, to you know, to encourage women to feel bad about ourselves the- <laughs> but actually, let me just say this. I mean...
2: We are we are sort of making generalized statements about you know all women, all men, and obviously within each gender and across the gender spectrum, there are individuals who have different approaches and different feelings about all of this, right?
3: Of course, yeah.
2: Um, but I do wonder if now would be the time when the men who series could actually thrive. <laughs> you know,
3: I think there are <laughs> Maybe, men, yeah. you know,
2: who are who are getting more introspective about the systems that they're perpetuating.
3: Yes, I think, that, and I think that's great, and especially with young boys. I mean, I, you see this paradigm with with boys and girls as well. I have three. Boys, and you know, you go into the kind of clothing section of Target and you see, or or Novi or wherever, and every girl's teacher is a kind of future CEO, girl power, you know, all of this, and the boys, uh, you know, the, the things for boys are still little monster, little terror, little whatever. And I just yesterday actually saw for the very first time, I went into Target to buy a shirt for my son. And I saw a shirt which said, be kind on it in Target. And I had to do a double take and kind of check that it hadn't been accidentally left there from the girls' section, that somebody had moved it. And then I saw on the wall there was a picture of a boy wearing the shirt. And it was really quite extraordinary. You do not see that message that it's boys who should be doing the changing or, you know, the onus being on boys and men to actually you know, meet a more female standard. So I do think you're right. I do think things are maybe starting to slightly shift.
2: Well, it's just, I mean, we've all grown up in the system. And for some reason, just, you know, because we've grown up in it, we accept that that's how it is. And so we're we as women are trying to find use all of our smarts and abilities to navigate within this system, when we actually could have this opportunity to just change completely. Right. The expectations and the ways that we that we work and yeah. live,
3: and absolutely work within the system. And I think all of these ideas where you put the burden on the the powerless person in a situation you know where you where we talk about personal responsibility it's a kind of bait and switch in a way it's a kind of you know taking the responsibility off the powerful people and sort of shifting it onto the powerless person and I think um, you know this whole idea of empowerment it's become so divorced from anything to do with actual power you know I think all this you know shampoo and makeup tips and bikini body journeys and all of that when we label all those things as empowering it kind of takes us away from thinking about power who has power why they have power and what we can do to change that it kind of obscures the message i think
2: right well it becomes just taken over by companies wanting to market their products right. on this quote unquote trend of feminism and the future is female and yeah. you know girl power
3: yeah girl right. power i mean we we changed you know i know i grew up in the uk and we changed Feminism into girl power with the, with the Spice Girls. And it kind of, it really neutered it. I mean, it made it cute. You know, girl already, it's infantilizing. You know, it's not woman power. It's something cute. It looks nice on a sparkly t-shirt. It's, it's pretty and it's non-threatening. And same with empowerment feminism. I mean, the one thing about the word empowerment, you know that anybody in any actual position of power will never, ever use the word empowerment. So <laughs> right. you see, you go on Instagram and it's kind of, here's my naked photos of my post baby body, you know, but you will never see a man saying, you know, oh, here's my naked photos of my post prostate surgery body. I'm finding it so empowering that will never (laughs) ever happen. Or like, you know, you will never hear the president saying, oh, it's just so empowering having these nuclear launch codes. You know, it's something that people use when they are very far from power. Having sons and being clearly
2: very aware of the world that we live in here. I mean, what are the kinds of things that you talk with them about?
3: Yeah. I mean, this is a big question. I mean, my oldest son is just turned eight, so they still are young. And, you know, this is a very interesting and scary time to be raising sons. I think um, up until now, people with daughters, I I think, see themselves as part of this big grand feminist project to change the world. And people with sons have kind of been allowed to ignore it. And I think we've reached a point with, you know, the Kavanaugh um, situation, with the current president, with, you know, this kind of the Me Too movement, with this kind of toxic masculinity just really out there, that I think people, parents of sons, really have to address this. I mean, I think the urgent work is on us, really. And so, I mean, the conversations that we're having, I think we're just starting. I tried to talk with my sons about an early version of consent and, you know, who and and standing back and listening. It's hard. I mean, these are hard conversations to have. It's hard to talk about consent before you've talked about sex. Right.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, unwanted hugging, right? Right.
3: Yes, exactly. So it's unwanted hugging and kissing. But it's you know, the, uh, having those conversations without, ha- you know, there's a kind of an elephant in the room, which it's the main, the main thing hasn't really been addressed. And that's a hard conversation to have. And I know parents of sons, you know, friends who've approached it in all kinds of different ways, everything from explaining absolutely everything up front at the age of two, you know, that's one friend, to, you know, really leaving this as a discussion to have around about puberty. And so, you know, and I probably am in the middle when it comes to that.
2: But the, But the question of consent is also, I feel like it's tied to other issues like listening to women or respecting them when they're being assertive or not expecting you know girls to apologize. You know, all the things that you were just talking about yes. for us as women being important in meetings at work. And, you know, all, I feel like it all ties back to how we relate to each other as, as you know, males and females.
3: Yeah. I mean, we're living in a time where even male and female now is, is uh, as to binary categories, that's yeah. kind of changing a lot as well. But, you know, even working within that, that those kinds of structures, absolutely. And I think, you know, one question that I've had to ask myself is, you know, we say, uh, women shouldn't be apologizing, but actually, maybe apologizing is really a good thing. And so maybe, you know, men, and by extension, my boys should be apologizing more. I mean, I think we've had this, this idea that whatever is the male cultural standard is automatically the better cultural standard. So, you know, men speak up in meetings, therefore women should speak up in meetings, rather than saying, you know, turning it on its head and saying, well, women tend to listen well in meetings, so maybe we should encourage men to do that. Now, I would love to see, you know, I, my, every year when it's time for summer camp, uh, you know, I send my boys to summer camp and I see these lines of girls um, all going off to summer camp and it's assertiveness camp, go girls camp. You know, it's all about getting girls to speak up and be assertive. Now, I would love to send my boys to deference camp this summer. You know, (laughs) I would love for them to go and learn those skills of listening because I think they are skills that you can learn and they're heavily, heavily socialised into girls and not into boys in all kinds of very, very subtle ways. But these things just don't exist. And I did actually read, there was an article in the New York Times that came out just recently, uh, which was all about boys' groups, which I think are all about empathy and listening and emotional intelligence. And I think these things are just starting to emerge, but, you know, not in any kind of major mainstream way. And I would really love to see that happen.
2: Yeah, I think that feels like a much more productive response than some of the other responses that I've heard from parents of boys who feel like, well, you know, with all this focus on girl power, what about my boy? You know, right. it's totally disempowering for my son to have to defer to these, you know, to these assertive <laughs> girls. And what's their future going to look like? And, you know, and ex- you know, expressing fear that somehow by women actually having more power or the female, quote-unquote, female approach to interactions becoming the standard is actually bad for boys.
3: And I think that's a really, it's a tough question because, you know, obviously, as a mother or as a parent, you're kind of fighting your own maternal instinct, which is like, I want everything for my kid. And I want my kid to have the best of everything and and to, you know, to do well and to succeed and to be happy and to be assertive and to do all of this. And that's, you know, that's the individual versus the collective. But I don't think you have to see those things in opposition. You know, I think there is plenty of success and happiness and everything for everybody if we can all learn to communicate effectively and to learn from each other you know what I'm not saying to my boys oh you know you have to stand back and you know only girls can succeed now and you know that's not really the point it, the point is that we all communicate in a way that's respectful to each other and then everyone's given an equal chance
2: what a concept! <laughs> sure, <Larry. laughs> so, what about for you, growing up as a girl? I mean, you grew up in in the UK. I did, and so I kind of have a twofold question, which is one, you know, I'm curious what girls growing up, you know, it, across the pond, you know, <laughs> were were taught, and specifically what you were taught versus, you know, what what was happening over here in the United States around around that same time. Which I'm just guessing you were born somewhere in between the late 70s, early 80s. I was born in 1974.
3: <laughs> okay, there we go. And so I'm like in the... I'm in the Generation X cohort. Yep, me too. Which is this... Interesting. So, I mean, this is really... um a fascinating time for me because when I was growing up, feminism really was a dirty word. I mean, you had to preface every, even the mildest statement for some kind of equality with, I'm not a feminist, but, you know, I'm not a feminist, but but I quite like to be paid the same as a man, but I better not mention it. You know, it was seen as, feminism was seen as something to distance yourself from. It was seen as um, unattractive and angry and, um man-hating. And I think we, the. I mean, I don't know, this is maybe getting off into a slightly different track. But in the UK, when I was growing up, it was all, you know, it was, it was a time of relative prosperity. It was a time when, you know, we were all into this kind of banter and lighthearted jokes. And I think that really cemented this kind of male power. You know, it was all irony and detachment and nobody wanted to be appear too earnest or be too invested in things. And so you see kind of tropes of pop culture from the 80s. I mean, you know, the Brat Pack movies, Sixteen Candles. I mean, these things really normalise things like rape culture and, um, you know, inequality, etc. as completely and utterly normal. And that's how I saw it. I worked for various large organisations in uh, the UK in my twenties, and sexual harassment was completely and utterly normal. We would um, have conversations, and you know, I was a TV researcher at the time, and we just completely accepted as normal that men in power would sexually harass us. And we would talk amongst ourselves about who to avoid the most, and you know, never get in in an elevator with that man, and never, you know, whatever. But we never would have even thought to to question this to higher authorities. We were so steeped in this patriarchal thing that. You know, uh, uh, now I think the Me Too movement has actually given us all a pair of kind of goggles to see the world in a very different light. And I remember when I worked um, for a major TV station and we were asked by the powers that be to um, pitch ideas for a series which was supposed to be about the major injustices in British society. So it was going to be an episode on each one. And I pitched an idea about feminism And literally, people laughed me out of town. It's like, well, we can't do that. I mean, that would be ridiculous. And this was, I mean, probably 10 years ago. You are kidding me. I mean, it was as though though I had suggested, you know, the most fringe, peculiar, bizarre thing. And they were like, well, obviously not that. Anyway, back to, to the men, you know. And so things have really massively changed i mean it's the, it's a huge social change that I've seen in the last ten years, and I think there probably is a difference between the u k and the u s on that but you know I think a lot of the trends i mean you see the difference now between um you know the way that, actually no i was going to say you see <laughs> i was going to say you see the difference between the way people responded to um Anita Hill and the way people responded to christine blasey Ford, but actually Ultimately those two things ended up at the same place. So so no, perhaps there hasn't been as much of a difference as we <laughs> cried. As we, cry as we into like to coffee. think, yeah, we're all weeping, yeah.
2: I'm Lauren Schiller and this is Inflection Point. As we've seen in the past few years, each time we gain ground, those in power push back and then blame us for not working hard enough, not being assertive enough, not being ambitious enough. Or having too much ambition? Is it the American dream or the American gaslight? We'll talk about that in a moment.
0: Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard.
2: This is Inflection Point. I'm Lauren Schiller with stories of how women rise up. I'm talking with Ruth Whitman about empowerment and individual responsibility for our own happiness. I asked Ruth to respond to something we heard earlier in the season from Dr. Barbara Adams, an organizational psychologist and diversity and inclusion expert. Here's Barb. All of that is based on this myth of meritocracy. That, you know, if you just, it's going to go to the hardest worker and they're the people who are going to succeed and it's the smartest people, blah, blah, blah. But that basically implies that if you're, you know, the black candidate or you're the woman who didn't get ahead, well, it's your fault. And it ignores what's really happening and what occurs in a system that's designed to help ensure
1: that you don't get ahead because that's where all of those biases are built
3: in. So I think Barbara Adams expresses it brilliantly. I mean, I think this idea of meritocracy is a very, very steely thread running through American society. People in this country have this very, very strong belief that if you just work harder at being happy, being rich, being thin, being successful, being healthy, being everything, then you can achieve it. And yes, it is a myth. And it's absolutely is putting the onus on the wrong people. I mean it's it's absolutely does not acknowledge, as Barbara Rasmus says, it does not acknowledge the systemic injustices which absolutely run through this culture and all of the obstacles in getting to that point and I saw it a lot with the happiness industry uh, you know the the self-help industry when I was researching my book and it is this idea that you have this individual responsibility to be happy I mean you see these memes that on Facebook things like happiness is a choice you know so the idea is you know if you're not making that choice and you're not working hard enough then you have no right to be happy and they very and you know positive psychology and um, the self-help industry absolutely minimize the effect of our circumstances, whether that's our kind of personal circumstances or our kind of um, demographic circumstances in terms of our class, our race, our gender, you know, they absolutely minimise the effect of all those things and absolutely play up to the max this idea that of individual effort and individual control over these things so we can just try harder. You know, it's this kind of bootstraps approach to happiness. And same with feminism, you know, it's this this idea, just, well, the reason why you're not being paid equally is because you just haven't asked for a raise. I mean, you know, or do power poses in the restroom. That should sort out the patriarchy. And you just think, oh, please, give me a break here, you know. <laughs> yeah,
2: exactly. <laughs> I really tried to convince myself for a while that those power poses made a <laughs> <laughs> Well,
3: it's all been disproved as complete nonsense anyway. But, but, I mean, I was thinking, you know, how about getting men to do some capitulation poses in the restroom before a meeting and so that they might listen a little better to you know, to people. And let's look at the corporations. Let's look at governments. Let's look at legislation. Let's look at real ways to actually address these very, very thorny issues.
2: What do you think about the rise of these women's only spaces? You know, co- women's co-working spaces. I mean, you, you mentioned the girl, you know, the girl assertiveness camps and things like that. You know, I think the idea is that that it's a, you know, it's a male free zone. So there's no navigating the gender dynamics, and you have the space to, you know, to fail or to express yourself without being shut down, etc, etc. I mean, I don't know, what what do you think about those kinds of spaces? uh,
3: Yeah, I think women only spaces have their place, uh, for sure. And I think, you know, you can absolutely see, I mean, some of it is to do with threat, you know, you see women's refuges and uh, places where women can go because they're literally in fear of of male violence, and that's obviously a very important thing to maintain. But, you know, in terms of co-working spaces and all the rest of it, I mean, absolutely, I think people traditionally who have been disempowered in uh, various ways really benefit from having their own spaces. I mean, actually, interestingly, I was uh, was reading this article about boys' groups um, in The New York Times, and I think that is an example of where male only spaces can actually be productive as well i think that's a it, this is a thorny issue because obviously male only spaces in historically have been used to exclude women from power from from places of power but i think with boys i think there are lots of boys in this article were expressing this idea that you know they feel like usually they feel like they have to be one of the guys or impress women or whatever and it was a safe space to kind of express emotions and all the rest of it so when handled carefully i think those things can be Important too. Yeah.
2: I were I I feel I feel of two minds. One one is that, you know, this this well, it's fun to hang out with other women. I mean that you know, like just like at its most bottom line. Like there is just something about that that it just feels relaxing and it's fun and we have a different way of talking with each other than we have of talking with men and it just you know, it is how it is. Is it that way because this is this you know, the system that we were raised in? Is it biological? Is it like I don't know. But there, I think there are definitely pros to it. But what I start to worry about is that we are heading toward another weird kind of segregation of the sexes, you know, that we're like by accident going backwards, you know, yes. when really what we're trying to do is create respect for all genders yes. together in the same place where we can be – sources of power for each other, regardless of our gender.
3: Yeah, absolutely. And I think, uh, you know, I mean, it's a very complex issue. And I think it so much depends on the circumstances and why people are doing this and in what situation and, you know, but yes, I don't think I think the future of society is not to completely segregate the two genders and, you know, have, uh, you know, we're not the wailing wall here. I mean, it's this, you know, I I think you're absolutely right that the, the future is for us all to be able to cooperate together and um, to to communicate and to get rid of this, you know, ridiculous system of gender stereotyping and segregation and, you know, all of these tropes that we have in place about what you are or can be because you're born either male or female.
2: You wrote an article in Time right before the 2016 election, which was called, I just... (laughs) love it. I mean, we are, we've talked about this, but empowerment is warping women's view of real power.
3: Yeah, And you quote Sadie Doyle. Could, who, could you talk about who she is? And So Sadie and Doyle is a, is a writer and journalist. Uh, she's fantastic. And uh, she wrote this very long and wonderful and influential piece about Hillary Clinton, which sort of tracked, um, amongst other things, tracked people's attitudes towards her in different situations. So when... Uh, Clinton was in office in whatever role, people regarded her very highly. But when she was seeking her next office, this was when all this kind of vitriol and anti-Clinton stuff would come out. And what she concluded was that it was something about this act of asking for power, which made her unpopular as a woman. So it wasn't her performance in the job. People pretty much thought she did great when she was actually in the job. But when she was seen trying to seek power, people became very, very uncomfortable. And, you know, this all feels like sort of like we're living in a different world now. But we all saw during the election this just absolute spew of sewage against Hillary Clinton for who she was, you know, everything she did, she was scrutinized in a way that no male candidate has been. I mean, the Trump-Clinton thing was this kind of ad absurdum example of this principle that, you know, a man can get away with virtually anything and a woman can get away with virtually nothing when it comes to looking for power. And this was such an extreme example of it that, uh, you know, I mean, his corruption reaches levels that are quite extraordinary. And she had her emails on a slightly problematic email server and yet she was the one that was like utterly labeled as corrupt and everyone's shouting lock her up when you know anyway that's another story but yeah I think so this this was a very very strong example of it. I encourage you to go and read the Sadie Doyle piece about it.
2: Yeah well what was also interesting to me is that the quote that you have in the article is that um, she talks about prejudice against women caught in the act of asking for power Yes. and what actually stood out to me is not only the idea of you know, striving for something more than we have being a problem, but the notion that you, that we have to ask for it.
3: Right. Absolutely. I mean, that is the whole, I mean, you know, without getting too much into the semantics of it, I mean, the word empowering, it's like somebody is handing power to the disempowered person. And who is the somebody handing the power? Because they obviously still, you know, it maintains the same power hierarchy. Yes. Why do we need to go and ask for power? In in that way, you know, I mean, it's assumed that men are the ones who, by rights, naturally have the power and women are the ones who have to go and seek it. And yeah, I mean, people are very, very uncomfortable with that.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think, I actually think that we should spend a little more time on the semantics of empowerment because the more you read about empowerment, the more. I don't know. Sometimes I'm like, that's great. You know, the UN is empowering girls by ensuring that they have more education in third world countries and are able to read and therefore take care of their families and earn some income, et cetera. So, like, that kind of empowerment, I'm like, yes, that's empowering because, in, in fact, a powerful entity is giving power to a less powerful entity. Yes. But then sometimes I read about empowerment. And it just feels totally fluffy and, like, meaningless.
3: Yeah. So I think the thing is we don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. I don't know if you use that expression (laughs) Yes, we do. do. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But, yeah, so absolutely, of course, under the banner of empowerment, there are many wonderful initiatives of which you've named um, some. And, you know, I think historically this word started with a wonderful idea, which was to put power in the hands of disempowered communities, for whatever reason. And it was kind of rooted in activism and all of the rest of it. I think as this has evolved, the word has become associated with this kind of feminism, like this kind of, you know, feminism as a branch of the self-help industry somehow, that empowering has become a description more of a feeling rather than of anything to do with actual power structures. So, you know, we talk about, you know, I'm finding this so empowering what we're describing when we say that is kind of this inner feeling of potency or, um, you know, kind of feel good, you know, or self-worth rather than anything that actually breaks down any actual power structures or puts us in a position of authority, a recognized position of authority.
2: Okay. So let's talk about how we're going to change this system.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Right. Let's do it now.
2: (laughs) We're going to put the power back in empowerment right here. Um, We always aspire. Okay. So um, another, another guest on the show is Rebecca Tracer, yeah. who has a book out now called Good and Mad. And she talks about anger as a tool for revolution. Or is it? <laughs> I mean, we, like, I, I, I feel like we, like it's not just the it's not just the righteous who are angry right? right and um you know her her theme is really that we need to listen to the stories behind people's anger and and take a minute to understand where they're coming from and why they're angry and that it's not just about all of us women getting out there you know with our pitchforks and <laughs> marching angrily down the street for, and and demanding change um but the but the question that it raised for me, and I feel like this ties in with your work on the happiness industry or the self-help industry, um, which is like, how do we actually get anything done if everyone's just mad at each other all the time?
3: Right, absolutely. So I think... Um I mean, Rebecca Traister is wonderful. And I haven't yet had a chance to read her book, but I've I've read lots around it. And I've heard her speak on various occasions. And I think this is so important, this idea that, you know, women's anger has been erased through history, that we need to listen to why women are angry, all the rest of it. Where we perhaps part ways is exactly, as you said, I don't think Anger tracks neatly to uh, progressive ideals. I mean, I think there are many very, very angry people in the world at the moment, and only some of them share my values. You know, Fox News is an incredibly angry space where people are, you know, haters spewing forth against immigrants and, um, you know, against women, against all sorts of things. And I wouldn't necessarily say that that was... Productive. In fact, I would say it was extremely unproductive. So, I think to just say anger, let's harness it, doesn't. Well, I think it's a good starting point because I think anger can motivate people. But I think, you know, it, it's a much more complex and messy field than than that would perhaps suggest. And I think Rebecca Tresta, to be fair, does acknowledge that as well. Um, and also, you know, at anger you know, there's anger as a kind of political driving force, but then there's also so anger as a, as an emotion, as a a feeling. And I think that anger can kind of cloud your thinking as much as it can clarify it. You know, it's good to recognise the reasons why we should be angry and, and, and act on those. But at the same time, I think we're if we're all just in a giant rage all the time, that's not necessarily going to lead to kind of skillful change. And a lot of Genuine change comes from kind of incremental policy, you know, trying to get into the nuts and bolts of what things actually work and what things don't work. And, you know, that kind of is, is tedious work, um, but it's also important work as well. And I think, you know, us all being in a giant rage. And I think also the thing is, it's like, you know, paralleled uh, with women's increasing anger is also men's increasing anger. And that is quite scary prospect. I mean, you see men's rights activists on Twitter, you know, in uh, online, I think there has been this huge spewing forth of male anger. And uh, you know, it's almost as a response to women seeking power, women becoming angry, you know, men dig in. And I think, as you say, this idea where everyone's kind of rageful all the time is not actually a particularly productive way forward.
2: This may be the next billion dollar industry.
3: <laughs> anger industry. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I mean, I know there's already anger management. Yeah. You, know, you can go take an anger yeah. management class, I yeah. guess, but... Um what do you think some of the answers are in terms of shifting the way that we think about power and who should have it and how our just how our world works on a on a daily basis? I mean, is it getting more women in office? You know, is that
3: one piece of it? Yes, getting women in office is definitely a piece of it and, you know, women being involved in politics is hugely important. I think um it's also Focusing on men. And, you know, this is, an a, you know, in our personal relationships and personal style, I think it's about targeting men and how we, men behave in public and, you know, starting with young boys and working on that. I think that's a huge piece of it. Um, I think legislation, it's corporations that need to um, take responsibility for this and people in power. You know, the next Sheryl Sandberg, who's writing their feminist manifesto, please, can you target it at companies or governments, you know, the people, you know, these systems of power rather than individuals. I think that's a huge, that's what we should be focusing on.
2: Yeah. Um, well, I mean, and that also, that also speaks to when we get more women leaders inside these companies who have worked their way up through the existing system, it seems that in some cases, they tend to just perpetuate the system that they, Absolutely. The, that they managed to succeed yeah. in. Absolutely. Um, so how <laughs> I don't know that we have the answer here, but how do we how do how do we get the women who are making their way up the corporate ladder, you know, breaking that glass ceiling, to then look down and say that really sucked the way that I had to get here, and I'm I want to change it for the next woman.
3: Yeah, I mean I think that is a cultural change is a complicated thing, and you're absolutely right that you know women empowered don't necessarily uh, make things better for other women, once they get there, they are working within the system. And, you know, I think cultural change takes time. And I think that we are in a period of very um, accelerated cultural change. And, you know, we've got pushback, and then we've got acceleration, and then we've got pushback, and we've got acceleration. So I think things are changing. I think the next generation of leaders have grown up in a very different world than the one that that I grew up in. So I think this will happen. But yeah, it's about educating men and boys. It's about, um, you know, a certain amount of education for women. It's about targeting, you know, it's about acknowledging the reality of it and stop it, you know, trying to stop this attachment that we have to this idea of the individual being the one who can affect change. I think we have to acknowledge that systems need to change, laws need to change, companies need to change, and people in power need to change. And if we stop selling this dream of, oh, you know, just stop apologising and ask for a raise and then suddenly you're going to be fine. I think if we acknowledge that that is... A minor, minor piece of the puzzle, then I think we can start to look at the bigger picture.
2: Yeah. Um, so here in California, recently, one of Jerry Brown's last acts as governor was to sign a law that by the end of 2019, any California-based company had to have at least one woman on the board, one female on the board. And by the end of 2021, that there had to be at least three uh, females on the board.
3: I mean, it's a pretty sort of depressing state of affairs that we actually need that law. At least one woman on the board. I mean, it's, it's really such a low bar, isn't it? I mean, <laughs> at least one woman. You know, I mean, I think it's good that, we're, that there's incremental change in that way. I would have preferred to see 50-50, but, you know, take what you can. But also, I think we have to look at the kind of nuts and bolts of how we make that happen. You know, how women can rise to the top. You know, what we have in place in terms of flexible working, in terms of maternity policy, in terms of childcare, um, those things that actually help women to rise up. And those can be thorny things to work out. But I think that's, you know, the devil's in the detail often. Yeah, I mean, sometimes I think that there are initiatives which are kind of well-intentioned, but you just think, oh, my goodness. I mean, one that I saw recently was um, in in the press was um, about Goldman Sachs paying for female staff to air freight their breast milk from wherever they are travelling in the world back to their baby, you know, to their young baby. I just thought, oh my goodness, we've got something very wrong here. I mean, air freighting your breast milk, I think we're slightly missing the point about, about you know, <laughs> women being with their babies and, you know, talking. What we really need is actual paid maternity leave and you know legislation making sure that your job is still there when you come back effective childcare those sorts of things i mean you know it's not the actual milk that's the issue <laughs> you know <Right. laughs> it's everything that goes along with it i'm
2: having i'm having flashbacks to traveling and Pumping in my in my hotel room and having to call the hotel staff to come and get it because the refrigerator in the room was not cold enough to freeze it. Oh, God. And then keeping it in the, the hotel kitchen until it was time for me to leave, at which point they returned to me with a giant baking dish of all my little bags of breast milk, which I then shoved <laughs> into my little black <laughs> pumping bag, put on my back, and went to the airport, where they then opened it up and were like, what's this?
3: <laughs> I mean, I have to say, the women with the like, double boob, pump action, bag full of breast milk. That is a very American image. I mean, it's something about this country where there is like a six-week maternity leave, which is actually some kind of like disability rather than, um, you know, with no federally recognised maternity leave and some awful little corner of the office where people are pumping away while on the phone, while sending an email. I mean, you don't see that in Europe because there is a protected maternity leave for the first year. I mean, uh, the UK is not the best in Europe for this, but at least you do have... I mean, I can't remember. I think it's 35 weeks of paid uh, maternity leave and, you know, there is legislation around this. So I think that that image is just such a, you know, American society gone wrong. It's <laughs> so crazy.
2: Well, that, I mean, that to me sounds like actual empowerment, like an actually empowering tool right. for women. Right, oh, absolutely, absolutely. I mean,
3: yeah, and, you know, you sort of... I think that... that the laws are laws are the things that can make changes uh, uh, most effectively. Another th- huge thing, which is not popular here, is unions. I mean, union representation is is a really important piece of this because these are organisations that I can actually bargain for genuine material change for workers and for women. And uh, you know, there's a reason why companies hate unions, and that's because union workers have much better conditions than the non-union workers. So I think you know, collective bargaining is a huge piece of the puzzle, as opposed to this tiny individual, you know, power posing in the restroom piece of the puzzle.
2: What's the best advice that you've ever been given about how to recognize a situation where the onus is being put on you as the individual to make sweeping changes in your world when really it's not actually up to you, that somebody else should be in charge? What do you do in that situation?
3: Huh. That's a really interesting question. I mean, I don't think I've ever been given a specific piece of advice on that, because I think it's so this idea of the uh, individual making the change is so baked into culture that I don't think anyone's really thinking in those terms. But, you know, having thought about this quite a lot, I think... The advice that perhaps I would give is that if you're in that situation and it feels wrong and you feel like you're exhausted and overburdened and, you know, why should I be the one doing all of this? You know, to stop and think and to call it out and to say, this isn't me, this is the system and there are problems here and who's really in charge here, who really has the power here and who should really be making the changes? You know, it's about calling things out for what they are and not accepting that we're the ones who need to make the changes.
2: Ruth Whitman is the author of America the Anxious, and her article in Time magazine was entitled Empowerment is Warping Women's View of Real Power. Self-empowerment is the 21st century equivalent of pulling yourself up by your bootstraps, which was the 20th century version of let them eat cake, which was the 18th century version of I have no idea what the problem is here. All of these concepts were thought up by people in power who were blind to the advantages they had on their own rise to the top. And as my producer Eric pointed out to me, you can't physically pull yourself up by your bootstraps. If you have some, give it a try. The question is, if the people in power refuse to change the system that gave them their power, and the people without power exhaust themselves attempting to make change so everyone has power, how will we ever make a more equal world? Well, we won't. Of course, we need to continue to ask for what we want, be assertive, project confidence. And as long as we're speaking up for ourselves, we need to insist that the individuals running the system, specifically white men, learn from our strengths. There's strength in listening and making room for new perspectives. There's strength in empathy and vulnerability and humility There's strength in focusing on the greater good. This is how we all rise up together. This is Inflection Point. I'm Lauren Schiller. That's our Inflection Point for today. All of our episodes are on Apple Podcasts, Radio Public, Stitcher, and NPR One. Give us a five-star review and subscribe to the podcast. Know a woman with a great rising up story? Let us know at inflectionpointradio.org. While you're there, I invite you to support Inflection Point with a monthly or one-time contribution. Your support keeps women's stories front and center. Just go to inflectionpointradio.org. We're on Facebook at Inflection Point Radio. Follow us and follow me on Twitter at L.A. Schiller. To find out more about the guests you heard today and to sign up for our email newsletter, you know where to go, inflectionpointradio.org. Inflection Point is produced in partnership with KALW 91.7 FM in San Francisco and PRX. Our story editor and content manager is Alora Weaver. Our engineer and producer is Eric Wayne. I'm your host, Lauren Schiller. We, you have a notebook sitting in front of you, which is cracking me up because of this conversation. That has the word "feminist" in all caps on it. It's yeah. slightly pink with like kind of a gold. yeah. So t- talk to me about that. Well,
3: I think this this um, this notebook is probably a great example of this kind of um, empowerment feminism. My notebook. This was a gift. It is pink. It has gold lettering it's very feminine delicate and it says the word feminist on it and I think the word feminist um in this kind of empowerment feminism sense has got this kind of cultural cachet as long as it's cute you know as long as it's pretty and it's pink and it's gold and it's lovely there are all kinds of products that uh you know I I think suddenly it's got this kind of cultural uh yeah cultural cachet that it that it never had before do, do you think it's at all ironic that you're carrying it around? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it's ridiculous. And actually, I'm kind of embarrassed of this notebook. I'd sort of forgotten, but I needed a notebook, and it actually has these kind of feminist quotes. I mean, we can look at it. Oh, yeah, if it's I really... say I'm beautiful, I say... What? I say if I'm beautiful, I say if I'm strong, you will not determine my story. I will, Amy Schumer. Well, there you go. That's another example of this very individualistic take on feminism because actually you know, we don't write our own stories to a large extent, you know, um, society, the patriarchy writes our stories to quite a lot. And, uh, you know, and this idea that, you know, I chart my own course, I am my own, my own person, I just need to power pose in the restroom. Yeah, it's not quite that simple. Let's try another one. Here we go. It took me quite a long time to develop a voice. But now that I have it, I'm not going to be silent by Madeleine Albright. I mean great that Madeline Albright's not going to be silent but you know I think more important is the actual office that she held and the fact that you know you know this idea that it's just about women speaking up for ourselves rather than kind of changing systems is is interesting that that's the quote from Madeline Albright that ends up in the in the in the feminist goal yeah. and pink notebook when she's you know, done so much when else. she's done so much you know yeah. i mean why is this what yeah. what we're looking at <laughs>